Hello and welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay, exploring all things wine with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Welcome back to the wonderful world of wine. How are you today, Kim? I'm doing well, Mark. How about yourself? Great. Always great to talk wine with you. Our first article today was from Christie's.com. 15 questions wine experts are always asked. So Christie's the auction house in New York, correct? Yes. High-end auctions. High-end auctions. Yeah, this is a part of the wine industry that I don't think a lot of everyday wine drinkers really know anything about, that there actually is a market for auctioning off either older bottles or more special bottles of wine and it's it's really crazy the the prices that sometimes these bottles can can attract yeah they auction off everything including wine so <laughs> we like that but there are a lot of interesting topics that they were asked and they're experts what would you like to start with Kim I think we should probably just start at the top of the list and, right. uh, and go on down I thought it was very interesting because this first topic that they introduced is a little bit out there it's about opening a bottle of champagne with a sword which is a process called sabering and it, you might think that this is, well, this is kind of a wacky out there thing to ask about, but it's a question that I do get from time to time. That's I'm laughing because you see these crazy videos online all the time about people doing this. Most of the time it doesn't go very well. But the question is, why? Yeah, why, why would you why need you to open it? a bottle of champagne with a sword? Who even has a sword? I don't, I don't know. But They do make, actually, champagne suppliers sell a saber to really? use that's made for this uh, technique. But Do you see this in California? catalogs as you're looking at I haven't stuff. seen it in catalogs, but I heard of other stores who bought certain products and have had one for free. Wow. And they then spend the next two weeks going around sabering all the <laughs> sparkling they can. So why don't you explain, Kim, to our listeners how it actually happened? What happens is if you look very carefully at a bottle of sparkling wine after you've opened it, um, look for the seam in the glass. There's actually a little tiny seam on one side of the bottle that is a little bit more uh, delicate and breakable than the rest of the bottle. So what happens is if you decide to saber your bottle of champagne, you have to line up your sword with the seam in the bottle and you have to like hold it in a certain way and then kind of one, two, three, and you knock the top off of the bottle below the, the cork. So you're not knocking the cork out of the bottle per se, you're actually knocking the entire glass part of the bottle off at the top. And then you have a little fountain of champagne and then you pour into your glasses. I'm always a little concerned that maybe you'll get some glass shards in your glass of champagne. I was just going to say that. Yeah, I was just going to say that. It always makes me a little nervous. And as you open it normally, you untwist the cage, you expose the cork, you always want to keep it at an angle away from you. You swipe the sword up and it clips that little excess glass and it just blows the top off because of the pressure. And like you said, Kim, I'm wondering, does any of that glass actually get in the product? Maybe the power of the wine shooting out the bottle because you do lose a fair bit of champagne, I think, in this method. And we're always taught like not to do that. Like, this is not how it should be done. You see somebody winning the World Series and you've got champagne splurting everywhere. Like That's not really when you're opening a bottle of sparkling wine for your own regular consumption. Um, you're supposed to keep all the wine
wine in the bottle because you want to enjoy every last ounce that's in there. But I think this is trying to be a spectacle. You know, it's trying to make a scene. So if you lose a little bit of wine, I don't think people really, really care all that much. There must be some history behind it that we really should research a little bit more of why this was done. I'm sure it was some sort of maybe a back to the war day. I believe it had something to do with the battle and someone couldn't have the time to open up their bottle of champagne. So they just knocked the top of it off. And all the videos I've seen, they just, once it flies, they don't show it flying. They just want to show the people's expression and the the, the champagne foaming out. But I wonder how far, if it, you know, it must project pretty far. Oh, that's a great question. I have no idea how far that must go. We'll have to do it. People can't see this, but when we talk about things, Kim's actually sabering in the (laughs) studio here and you can't see it, but she does a good job. That's right. I bring that big sword to work. The second question that is asked of the folks at Christie's concerns how to set a table for wine service. So not just the plate and the silverware and things like that, but also the wine glasses and in what order should they be on the table? Yeah, now, when I go out to eat, I never really notice this. Do you, Kim, when you're sitting down, formal I, I dining? I don't often notice where the wine glasses are. I do notice where the water glass is in relation to the bread plate because I feel like that's something that people do confuse an awful lot. But I haven't found that I've really noticed specific sets for wine glasses. It's funny because when I'm on Pinterest and I see these formal, here's how you set, especially with, with the knives and the forks, I always post it. And then I always forget what, what it, why it, mm-hmm. I was interested in it. But a few things, it just says white wine glasses and red wine glasses are positioned differently. And it's based on water glasses and if it's a knife or a spoon. So to me, I never notice it, but I'm sure service-wise, people are very strict about this. For me, as a service with wine, all I care about is who's poured first and which direction the table goes, not where the glass is sitting. Just remember that your bread plate goes on the left and all of your glasses go on the right. I think that's a big thing for people to know. So the technical thing is the red wine glass goes above the starter knife. Now, is that the butter knife, Kim? What's the starter knife? Well, you use your your silverware from the outside in. So I would think that that would mean that the red wine glass would be the farthest to your right. Well, that makes sense. Now it says the white wine glass goes above the soup spoon. So are we talking now on the opposite side of the knives? Nope, that's on the same, same side, side as the knife. Okay. Yep, so all of your glassware is going to go above your spoons and your knives. And it did say that. I just checked my note. It did say right side. <laughs> so, Forks so on I the left. I think I've never gone to a restaurant where I've had two wine glasses on the table. Usually it's brought when you order. There's the, the water glass is always there. But have you ever seen it set where there's already two wine glasses there waiting? I think it depends on the kind of restaurant. I don't often go to really high-end dining restaurants where all of the glassware will already be at the table. But I think certain steakhouses still definitely do that, where they'll they'll already have the glassware set, and then they will take away whatever wine glasses they know you're not going to be using. If you're only going to order red wines, then they won't leave the white on the table. I think that's a good idea for restaurants, though. If you put that wine glass in, it's empty. Maybe people are thinking, wow, maybe you should put something in that right. glass, right? Kind of like always having the dessert menu on the yeah, table. Exactly. It gets people to think about, oh, I'm going to order some more stuff. Or the wine menu. Same with, like, I talked to a few people who own restaurants and I'm like, you have the specials menu. Why not put the wine on that menu? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Today's specials a filet mignon. Why not put, go, and also special tonight is Cabernet to go with that filet. Right. So right. throwing the glass out there, I think is also a great idea. I think that's something that would definitely help people buy a little bit more wine in the restaurant. 
You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find out more information about Mark at franklinliquors.com and more about me at vinitaswineworks.com. The third topic that was touched on was how to serve port wine. And I still think for a lot of people, port is a bit of a mystery. So port is a sweeter style dessert wine that comes from Portugal. And because it is a little bit higher in alcohol as well as high in sugar content, you generally want to serve it in slightly smaller glasses and it is very useful and delicious as almost a dessert in and of itself but definitely an after dinner kind of thing yeah every time we use a port wine in a tasting or education i think people are shocked at the amount of alcohol because it is a fortified wine so that is why you have a little less but it also it's a good reason why at the end of a meal it's a good palate cleanser i guess and i think people are always a little surprised by how delicious they are too like it's not something that a lot of people would ever think to pick up off of a shelf or order at a restaurant but there are some styles, of course, that I prefer over other styles, but they've always shown very well in our in our wine club events and in our tastings. Yeah. In this article, they were talking only decanting vintage rated port. So any port that has a year on it is the only port really that you need to decant, which I really don't agree with that. But really? I mean, these are the experts, you know, we're, we're... Well, the reason why they would say to decant a vintage port as opposed to decant a 10-year or 20-year or 30-year is because of the sediment in the bottom of the bottle, correct? Yeah, I, yeah. Ag- I agree with decanting vintage, but I also feel like a lot of the other styles could use some Oh, aerating. okay. Yeah, so, so but, but for a different reason. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So they were only saying vintage only because of the sediment, but I think there's other styles that they've been closed so long, it makes a good sense to do that. The other tip that was given for port was to keep the bottle upright 24 hours before you pour it. And then when you do pour it, you pass to the left, which is traditionally the same for all pouring of wine. Hmm. So the upright thing, Kim, like you mentioned earlier, it's all about the sediment in the bottle. You you want to keep it upright so it settles down. So you, when you pour it, it's not already at the top of the bottle. So I think that's a good idea about keeping it upright. And I've heard horror stories where people go to a restaurant, even on general wine, and the service coming out and they're swinging the bottle back and forth oh. before they pour it. So a lot of people don't care about that or would see it and wouldn't care. But if it, there's sediment in there, it's just shaking it all up. And that's not a good thing. Right. And this goes for heavier reds as well. I had a bottle that I was pouring for a tasting last week and it was a a heavier red. And I think it had just been taken out of the storage box and it had been obviously stored upside down. That's how a lot of wines are stored properly so that the cork doesn't dry out. But I pulled it out and I poured a tasting pour for myself and all I got was just sediment in the bottom of my glass. And the attendees to my event were looking at it like, is that okay? I'm like, oh, it's totally normal. Don't worry about it. At all. So all that sediment in the bottle of the bottle of port is not a problem. It's actually supposed to be there. It's not telling you that there is a problem with your bottle, but you just don't want to be chewing it. The next question that experts are always asked is how to open a large format bottle. And large format bottles are not very popular. We're talking things above like 1.5 liters. It is a pain, right, Kim? Have it's, you have experience with this? Yeah, I had a bottle of champagne that was a 
three liter or a six liter. I don't remember how big. And that was a little hard to open. Yeah, when you get to those larger format bottles, and I think most people will only ever see these maybe even a couple times in their lives, but a regular corkscrew isn't going to do the job uh, yeah. for opening this this style of the bottle. And they name all these large format bottles after biblical names. Yeah. So you know when you hear these long names, you're in trouble right away. Right. Right. So the corks are just extra huge. So if you take the normal cork and I'd say multiply that, I don't know, sometimes 10 times, there's no corkscrew you're going to put into this to, to get this thing out of there. And they're really heavy too. They're heavier corks. So there's a special corkscrew that works very well for these sizes of bottles and also works nicely for corks that are a little bit older and might be a little crumblier. Um, it's a it's a style of corkscrew called a, pr- a two-pronged corkscrew. And what happens is that it's got just two prongs. One's a little longer than the other. One's a little shorter and a little more pointed and you just wiggle the corkscrew in on either side of the cork and you wiggle it down and then you can turn it while you're pulling up and that usually does the job. And the experts also mentioned there's a special decanter that basically you'd put the huge bottle on its side in this decanter so you don't have to hold it because you, you physically can't hold it. You need it a friend. You really can't yeah. pour it all by yourself. In this special cradle, I guess you would call it, you'd sit the bottle in, you pull the cork out and then it would just, I would guess it would just pour out but it is is a very hard thing to do. Most of the times they're so big you can't even hold them. Mm -hmm. I know one time we had a party and we had a special format bottle that I had in storage for a while and I just gave it to the restaurant and said, you deal with it because I don't want to deal with it. And after finally getting the cork out and getting the sediment out, it's a lot of work. It needs a lot of presentation. Mm Number five is a topic that we have explored in previous podcasts, and it's how to tell if a wine is faulty. And faults in wine are a general category, and there are some specific problems that can go on with your wines. Is your wine too old? Is it oxidized in a bad way? Is it smelling like apple skins and kind of nutty and and not so pleasant? That's a fault. Does it smell like wet cardboard? That means that you've definitely got a bad bottle there. So that's a corked bottle. That's one of the major faults that we see. But also something like is the acid off you know does it have all a lot of volatile acidity and just tastes too tart and too sour that can be a fault as well it's good for our listeners to know because if we're repeating things all the time and these experts are getting the questions these are very popular topics in the wine world and wine faults is never going away it's always a hot topic always if you think there's something wrong keep sampling it i guess kim and, and explore but most of the time the chances are it's not faulty it's just maybe wine you don't like or if it's a bottle that you are familiar with and maybe it's your regular drinking wine and you open a bottle one time and it just doesn't smell or taste the way that it's supposed to, then you have a little bit of experience with something that can go wrong with a bottle that you already are familiar with the flavors of. We, I'm curious how the, the so-called experts, because we we're, we're experts. We're, well, you know, not according <laughs> to this article, I guess, but you think they're explaining this the same way we're explaining it is what I'm going with. I'm, I'm hoping that they are. You know, it's there's like a, a universal, lot of, there's right? There's a lot of us in the wine industry that all kind of agree on when a bottle is bad why is it bad uh, i think that's this pretty pretty standard stuff for those of us that have been doing wine for a pretty long time i just feel like w- every time we mention it it might scare people away from trying wine but th- then i think about it well it's no different than i buy a gallon of milk and it's spoiled right mm-hmm. i mean you- you're taking your chances with any product that there's something wrong with it but you're taking your chances with a bottle that you're familiar with anyway so right. if you happen to always drink kendall jackson chardonnay every once in a while you might get a bottle that's not up to par 
are and how you are used to it tasting. So just because you're drinking something that you are already familiar with doesn't save you from the possibility of having a fault issue with your bottle. And I think if you drink the same wine, like you said, Kim, if you're drinking the same wine all the time, you know it's bad. But when you're experimenting, you want to try something different. You don't know the style, so you might think it's bad, but it's not. So that's where I think people kind of get confused when we talk about faults. And that's where people like ourselves come in because then we can taste it too and be like, okay, this is what you're tasting. This is what you're smelling. Yes, there is a problem with this bottle or no, this is just the way that this grape variety tastes or that's just the way that this wine is supposed to taste. Yeah, if you think your wine's bad, bring it to us. (laughs) We we will taste it. We're happy to help you. Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We're your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay, exploring all things wine with you. If you would like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. If you'd like to get more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. Wine question number six is a question that I get probably on a weekly basis, and it's how long to keep a bottle of wine after it's been opened. Now, I've done a little bit of some experimentation on this, and it obviously... It depends on the type of wine that you have. Some things are going to last a little bit longer. Lighter whites and rosés are going to start falling apart earlier than heavier reds. But in general, they are still going to be drinkable after a few days, but the flavors are going to start to get muted. They're going to start to fall apart. It's not going to taste as fruity. And a good rule of thumb is to keep your open bottles in the refrigerator, regardless of if they are red or white. And that's going to slow down oxidation and it's going to preserve those flavors for a longer amount of time. It's just so common a question that we get, Kim. And I think it's interesting to me is that most of the time people are asking for wines that they open at their home, but they're not thinking about when they go to the restaurant, how long that bottle's been open and what what they do with it. Do you realize that? Yeah. And I think, and that's actually what I think about all the time. If I go to a restaurant and I'm, I'm ordering a wine by the glass, my first thought is, oh God, I wonder when they opened this bottle. Yeah. And I think that's what people should be concerned about. And I always tell people when you go to a restaurant and if it is by the glass, ask them when it was open or ask them to open it and pour it in front of you, which is perfectly fine etiquette. But I also hear stories from restaurants where they'll open a bottle and then they'll say, oh, we'll just keep it back here behind the bar and we'll use it for a sangria. Mm-hmm. So they're not really s- storing it right because they want to reuse it another way. Right. But I think that's the key thing for people to be concerned about is how long it's open at a restaurant. But honestly, the using it in a cocktail afterwards, like turning it into sangria, I think that is a perfectly reasonable way to get rid of, not rid of, but to use up inventory that you've already opened. I actually think that's really smart and a good use of product. Yeah, so I agree with that. So if they open a bottle right now and they don't finish it that night, you shouldn't, you feel they shouldn't serve it the next day, correct? They should use it as sangria. If they've been keeping it on just behind the bar, if they've refrigerated it, if they've used some sort of preservation, then I think that they can get away with using it the next day. But it it does depend on the wine. I know personally, if I I've preserved the wine using an inert gas product. There are these things that you can get on the market that are nitrogen and argon generally. And you squirt a little bit in the top of the bottle and it creates a bit of a barrier from oxygen. That's going to help for at least a couple of days. So if I do that and I cork it real tight and I put it in the refrigerator, I'm okay using it for the next couple of days. But anything beyond that, I would be uncomfortable recommending that people, especially in a professional setting, serving it to customers or serving it to clients, I wouldn't advise beyond that. Yeah, and I would say a lot of restaurants 
restaurants are not preserving it that way because when it's a, a glass pour, it's they figure it's going to go fast. So right. they're not going to spend the money to do that. And another inside thing about the wine by the glass at a restaurant, typically they, it's priced. So once they pop the cork on that bottle, the one glass pour pays for that bottle. So they shouldn't have to keep it any longer than they have to. People are always shocked when I give them this little tidbit of kind of behind the bar information. But yeah, because a restaurant doesn't want to lose money on that bottle. So if you buy a glass of wine, chances are you are paying the entire cost of what that restaurant spent on that bottle of wine. And that's developed just for the purpose of in case only one person orders mm-hmm. it all night, then it's gone. It's, sure, because they don't want to lose money on money. that. Right. We're talking about an article that was in Christie's.com, 15 questions wine experts are always asked. And once again, how long to age a wine pops up in this article, Kim? Always a question that unfortunately has the answer of it depends. It depends on the wine. Yeah. And when you say that to people, you're not really, we're no, not really it's answering so fr- the I know question. it must be so frustrating when people ask like, how, you know, how long should I age my wine? And I never can give them a straight answer. I'm like, let's ask a few more questions and try to get to the bottom of what are you aging? Why are you aging it? At what point do you like your wine? Because you might think that, okay, you know, I've heard, oh, fine wines are meant to age and and all this stuff. But if you don't like or appreciate what an old wine tastes like, but you really like the flavors in a young wine, then honestly, you really shouldn't be aging your wines. I think that people should be drinking their wines at the stage that it's at, that it gives them the most pleasure. Not what somebody else is saying, this is the peak of where this wine is. Yeah, we've talked about aged wines a lot. And if you don't like the profile of an aged wine, then like you said, Kim, drink them right away. And I find myself puzzled a lot of times by this because I'll put a wine in a cabinet and then I'll find it years later. I'm like, why did I age this mm-hmm. one? At the time, I must have thought it was a good idea. But most I, most of the time, I'll tell people an aged wine can be something that you know is very tannic or very acidic, the two key things. And you only know that if you've tasted it one time and you know, well, this is very tannic right now, I'll put it away and try it maybe a year or two later. That being said, there are certain grape varieties, certain styles, and then certain regions that overall tend to produce wines that do benefit from a little bit of aging. And by a little bit, it could be two years, it could be five years, it could be 10 or 20 years, but a lot of it does depend on where is that wine from and does it have the history behind it to prove that yes, this wine does age well. So we're talking about Bordeaux from better vintages that I would say right out of the barrel costs over $25 a bottle, would you say? Kind of thinking as far as price range, that that's also something that needs to be taken into consideration. A $10 bottle of Bordeaux that's just like random stuff on the shelf, that is is meant for immediate consumption. There's a lot of inexpensive wine, I would say in the under $15, under $20 category that really is not meant to be aged. Yeah. How many times when people ask you this question, Kim, do they tell you a variety or a wine that you know no way that should have been aged, right? Mm-hmm. So they'll say, I have this bottle of uh, white Zinfandel I got for a gift five years ago, right. or a bottle of Beaujolais Nouveau, right? And I'm storing it, and you're like, sorry to tell you, that's probably really bad. Or even know? something that, you know, people might not know that those things aren't meant to be aging. Like, oh, you know, I have a really good bottle of Chardonnay from California. It's 10 years old. Mm, well, depending on a particular bottle, maybe it improved a little bit, but maybe not, because there are some whites that do age well, and 
and but most of them really don't. So that ten dollar bottle of Chardonnay may be over the hill. Yeah, and you can always refer to like we talked in the past about vintage shots. They'll always tell you if a wine is ready to drink or it should hold it or it's at its peak. So always use those resources to find out if it's ageable or not. I also find that I recommend to people that they go onto a website called Cellar Tracker, which is this like crowdsourcing resource for people who when they try try a wine and they want to put in notes and say, yeah, this is drinking really well right now, or this might improve in a couple of years, or I should have drunk it last year. So it's, it's actually really pretty nice because there are a lot of people on there who do put their tasting notes and do give some good insights as to, yes, I had this wine and this is what I think about it. And this is where I feel like it's at in its lifespan right now. So that can be really very valuable too. If you want to take that extra step, especially if you've been storing some things in your cellar, if you have a wine cellar or are very curious about maybe something you just found a couple of bottles of, look it up. It's, it'll take you five minutes and you can put in all the specifics about that wine, especially the vintage, because that's very important. Yeah, just look it up and see what other people have to say about it. You've been listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Plus, you can visit Mark at franklinliquors.com and myself at vinitaswineworks.com. The eighth topic that wine professionals are often asked about is what type of wine glass should I be using for a certain type of wine? And we do get this question a lot. It's a little bit more difficult, especially in a situation like, say, our wine club or one of our tastings, to set out different shapes or styles styles of wine glasses because we pour a lot of wine and we have a lot of people that participate in our groups and our classes. So when we do wine tastings, we generally just use one shape and size of glass as opposed to being able to use like a Bordeaux shaped glass and then a burgundy shaped glass and something different for reds and different for whites. I look for consistency when I use different wine glasses. So in a tasting setting, I like to use all the same glass, regardless of if we're tasting white or tasting red or tasting champagne. Mark, what's your opinion on different glasses. I like, first off, how you said professional instead of expert, because I think that is a perfect title that people, you know, to say an expert, but I'm getting off the subject. (laughs) Go ahead. Um, (laughs) Anyway, when we do tastings, there there are tasting glasses that are standard size or shape that are typical for to taste wine properly. But I've experimented a lot. You know, if you look at a lot of the Riedel websites, they actually have seminars where they show you how if you taste a certain wine in the wrong style glass, it totally changes the profile. Have you been to any of those? I have not. I, I have. I have went to you? one last year. Yeah. You're so lucky. I actually it, I actually approached them to host them for an event. So I'm excited, hopefully, to have that happen. But at first I was getting, yeah, I was getting a Pinot Noir glass. I was getting a Chardonnay glass. And I was collecting them. And then I'll tell you what happened. My wife put them in a dining room cabinet that had cedar in it. So now all my glasses smell like cedar. So that whole theory of using a different glass kind of went out the window. You could always wash your glasses before you pour. I can't get that cedar smell out of it. Yeah, that's a whole other show, I think. But but (laughs) yeah, I I love the idea of trying. But my key thing on a wine glass for me, Kim, is the biggest glass, the biggest bowl on the glass. Not for volume, but for aeration. Mm -hmm. So that's the whole point of having 
when you see a big wine glass, it's like, oh, what's the point of having a big wine glass? Is it so that you can pour half the bottle into that wine glass? No. It's so that the wine has a chance to breathe. Oxygen exposure gets into that wine and then all the aromas come up and then the flavors are a little bit more pronounced when you actually take a sip. So the bigger bowl of the wine glass is so that you can swirl a little bit more and get all those wonderful yummy aromas coming out of the glass. I've sort of, I think, scaled back a little bit on the wine glasses that I use. And like I said, you know, when I do a wine tasting, I stick to one glass because I want the consistency so that everybody in the group is tasting it in the same way. And if there is variability between wine glasses, a little wine glass is going to show a wine differently than a big wine glass. I want everyone to start on the same, kind of on the same footing. (laughs) That being said, I have a lot of different shapes of wine glasses at home. I have three reds shapes and three white shapes that I use consistently all the time at home. So we we like our wine glasses. Yeah. So when you're doing a a professional tasting, everyone having the same glass, as you said, Kim, what would happen is the wine would basically be hitting their mouths all at the same spot, I guess you could say. So technically, a long time ago, the key thing I learned about a wine glass, and if you look at one the next time, is the lip. Have you heard this whole theory Mm -hmm. about the lip? So a lot of it has to do with how thin or how thick the glass is, because that will change how you're perceiving the wine. Yeah. And if the if the lip rolls in or rolls out, it could prevent how the wine is hitting your mouth or the point at which it hits your mouth. So that's the whole theory about different glasses is that when it's going into your mouth, that the wine is actually hitting a certain spot to get the most of that varietal in your mouth. So it would be a fun experiment for people at home. If you have a bottle of wine and then you have a nice wine glass and then you have something like, um, like a water glass or even a mason jar, I actually think that would be fun. Pour the exact same wine into different shapes and then close your eyes and taste them and see if you can taste a difference. And now, honestly, this might all be just a marketing gimmick to sell lots of different shapes of wine glasses. I'm not 100% sure. I haven't done too much trying of lots of things, but from the little bit that I've done, there definitely does seem to be an impactful difference depending on what you're drinking out of. So what do you do, Kim, when you go to someone's house and they give you a glass of wine, it's in a purple short tumbler and you can't see the wine? Do you do you, do you get like, what, what's going on? No, here? it depends no. on context. Yeah. I mean, if they invite me over for a wine tasting and that's what we're tasting out of, I'm going to be like, okay, I've got some good glasses in the back of my car. Let me go get those. But if we're sitting by the pool and we're drinking a glass of wine, I'll drink it out of that purple cup. I don't care. No, yeah, it's, so, it, it depends on context for me. So that's my, I guess my point on this was that there'll never really be this whole thing. Well, yeah, I have to use this because there's so much out there of other products. Like you use the little rubber glasses when you go to the beach, right? right. So I mean, you're not bringing <laughs> a Chardonnay glass to the beach. It's it's for the, like you said, the situation right. calls for certain things. Am I worried about what I'm drinking my can of wine out of? Not really. As long as I can pour it into something else out of that can, (laughs) I'm not really bothered. Join us next time for part two of our conversation about 15 topics that wine professionals are always asked. Thank you for listening to us. We are Mark Lenzi and Kim Simone of The Wonderful World of Wine. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine, and we welcome your questions and your comments. Cheers. Cheers.